Hi there. I hope you find great value in the episode that I'm about to share with you. Before we start, I want to thank you for your precious attention and take this opportunity to invite you to consider joining my next Entrepreneur's Awakening Mastermind program. I'm only accepting eight business leaders and it's filling up fast. If you're curious, visit awakeforward.com right now to learn more and apply to join. Okay, on with the episode. I would simply say that after uh, many decades in this field, I have not seen any other modality work with such finesse and power and grace as psychedelic medicines. I mean, it blows the doors off talk therapy. In this episode of the Awake Forward podcast, you will learn the critical things you need to know if you're considering working with a professional psychedelic guide. In my conversation with Nikki, we discussed the following topics. Who shouldn't engage with psychedelic medicines? the benefits and risks specific to business leaders holding executive roles, the critical mistakes you can avoid making, and how to find a guide, and most important, how to vet a guide to know if they have what it takes to provide you with a safe and impactful experience. I chose to interview Nikki because he has worked with many of my Awake Forward coaching clients and has more than 40 years experience working with psychedelics. Nikki, by the way, that's not his real name, started using psychedelics to explore his experience of consciousness when he was a teenager. In his 20s, he became deeply involved in indigenous ceremonial traditions that included the use of psychedelic plants. Back in 1994, at 30 years old, he began a decade-long apprenticeship with ayahuasca in the Colombian tradition. Now in his late 50s, he's recently completed an intensive three-year training where he developed the processes that he uses today with his clients. This is Nikki's first time speaking publicly about his work, and I feel very fortunate to be able to share his depth of knowledge with you. Let's dive in. Oh, before we start, I must make something clear. The opinions shared in this podcast are just opinions. My guests and I are not medical professionals and are certainly not providing you with medical advice. You should always consult your doctor when it comes to your personal health or starting a treatment program of any kind. Thank you, Nikki, for being willing to jump in with me. Yeah, thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm more than happy to get really good information out to people who are seeking psychedelic-assisted therapy as a pathway towards transformation in their lives. Let's get the good information out there. All right. So I'm going to jump in with a big question, which is, if there were one thing that you wanted everybody seeking a therapeutic psychedelic guide to know, what would it be? Oh, the one thing. Well, using the metaphor of the mind being like a computer and just imagining that we have an OS, an operating system, this is an opportunity to upgrade your software. Using psychedelics in an assisted, professionally held container gives us a chance to actually take a look at those hundreds of lines of code that were installed since birth. The programming that's been reinforced day in and out, first by our parents and then by us. There's a lot of programming that's 
somewhat sabotaging our ability to thrive in life. And it's an amazing opportunity to upgrade our software. All right. So what are the most common positive outcomes that you see for the type of clients I send you? Mm. You know, you may expose or unearth some thoughts or some feelings or sensations that are normally hidden from our conscious awareness. And this allows us an opportunity to bring to the surface some of that which might have been held in cellular memory that could use to be cleared. For instance, you might become aware of self-defeating patterns of behavior. Uh, you might see a social mask and the role maybe that it played in helping one avoid pain or perhaps gain acceptance. Someone might discover denied or repressed parts of themselves, parts that are vulnerable or soft or powerful or angry, brokenhearted. The list is endless, mm -hmm. but it's really coming to reassembling us as a whole and re-inviting all parts back home. Mm. Yeah. So what I'm hearing in that is through this process, there's like a reintegration, recalibration, realignment of your inner self in a way that supports your external life to be less complicated or less difficult. Yeah. I'd say it's, you know, we're all striving to be in rapport with ourselves or Mm -hmm. put another way, in right relationship with ourselves. Yeah. So if we can find a way to be more comfortable being our authentic self, then a lot opens up for us. So true. I would say the positive benefits are all an emergent property of this type of inner recalibration alignment that you've, you've spoken to. And some of the ways I see that show up in the work context is just more congruence as a leader, like your, your presence as a leader in all the contexts that you're leading is, is simply more congruent. And it's a bit hard to measure that, but everybody around you feels it. And it's not uncommon for my clients to have compliments in the weeks after their experience, though nobody they work with knows they went through it about just their quality of presence, their ability to listen, to create the experience of being heard for their direct reports and colleagues. Another positive outcome that I see pretty commonly is a sense of being able to choose a different emotional or behavioral response to situations. So an example of that is I had a CEO who was a very command and control type CEO, which worked really well until the company was at about 120 people, in which case he had to switch to a delegate and empower form of leadership, which he knew and tried to do and was working with me as a coach to do. But it went so against how he did his own life and how he had done life up until then that he couldn't just choose to lead different, even though he had the model to follow. And mm -hmm. it was through his psychedelic therapy experiences that he was able to create a different relationship to the part of him that didn't trust people, that wasn't willing to release control and trust others with his vision and mission for the company. Mm -hmm. And as a result, 
he was able to make significant changes as he transitioned successfully to this delegate and empowered style of leadership. Yeah, that's a beautiful story. And it makes perfect sense because these psychedelics, they, they really help illuminate what's in our blind spots. Things that might have kept us safe as a child that has now become a program that performs on auto function gets to be resolved, gets to be brought to the light. You know, there's, there's always what we want and what we're moving forward to, but for some reason, many people aren't getting what they want. And what is it that's between them and their object of desire? We call it these ecological objections. It would, could be would just... Would that be synonymous with subconscious objections? Subconscious objections is a great way to put it. Um, beliefs held for decades, strategies built around those beliefs. There's a window of neuroplasticity in the brain that psychedelics allow us to work within that is really imperative to leverage after the day-long retreat there's a new path being formed and with the proper integration and the right coaching that can become now the new normal. Mm -hmm. So we just spoke a little bit about positive outcomes. Let's now speak about the most common unreasonable expectations. Oh, that somebody will automatically be somehow a better person or be more peaceful or more loving. Let's just imagine that it's taken them years, if not decades to habituate some of their behavior, nothing will happen overnight. But it's through the crack that the light comes in. So this is where this practice with psychedelics, it becomes a path, a path to mastery. And so we want to just lay to rest the possibility for unreasonable expectations because we'd rather under-promise and over-deliver. That totally makes sense. And when I heard you say that, I was like, well, I do see people change overnight, mm -hmm. especially in the first week after, I'd say some of the most common, you know, emergent properties of the day-long retreat is genuine heart openness, uh, the ability to express appreciations and gratitudes and just love for the people in their lives. Like that armor has is, is been removed. And it could feel like a false promise because though that does happen, a lot of the armor will come back over the next three weeks. And so their, their access to being as self-expressed as they are in the week after will diminish. But I don't usually see it going all the way back to the pre-retreat the pre baseline, if you will. Yeah, you're so right. Well, it's, it's why we say that actually the most important part of the work is the integration. Okay. You know, otherwise it's just like the warm, fuzzy feelings of last New Year's Eve party inevitably fades into the distance and, and we just remember what a good time it was. Mm -hmm. But with integration, we can take that open-hearted, new, expanded state that they might have for just a week and begin grounding it into their life. Now that becomes integrated, woven right into life so that they can actually step into the this newer version of themselves that they were seeking? The quick answer is weeks of preparation, being totally focused on the key things that you feel are most important, being supported during the experience to keep your attention on those key things and honor simultaneously the, the, 
things that just come up that are unexpected and weaving them together into one cohesive therapeutic experience. And then as Nikki and I agree, in the weeks after is where the real value is harvested because you have this increase in neuroplasticity, which basically translate the ability to change your mind in a way that you just didn't have. So working with your guide and with me as a coach, we identify the best opportunities to take advantage of that neuroplasticity and integrate it into your professional and personal life in the weeks and months after. That's really well said, Michael. I, I completely agree how you just summarized it in a nutshell. Yeah. Okay, good. So unfounded fears. I'm happy to realize that most of the unfounded fears that I used to field regularly aren't coming up anymore. Like I'd say from like 2010 to 2016, before there was a lot of public information about therapeutic psychedelics, it was like, am I going to go crazy? Mm. Um, is something going to change with me psychologically that is going to make me unfamiliar with myself or cause me to make decisions that I regret? But I'm not hearing that kind of fear anymore. Are you? I think they have been somewhat laid to rest by all of the media attention we've received over the last decade from all the trials that the various institutions like John Hopkins and NYU have done. I'd say, yeah, and that's true. And I'll, I'll add to that Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, and uh, the many, many Tim Ferriss podcast episodes have done a lot to change public perception and expel yeah. the unfounded fears that were kind of hangover from the 1980s, just say no to drugs campaigns. Hello, dear listener. During the editing of this episode, Netflix released a new series called How to Change Your Mind. If you're curious about what MDMA-assisted therapy can do for you, then I suggest you watch the excellent episode on MDMA. Okay, back to the interview with Nikki. And it's not 100% safe. Um, it can be done recklessly. And when pe people are using medicines recreationally, it's easy to slip up and not provide the best container for the best experience possible. Yeah. So it's definitely not um, suitable for all ages, nor is it 100% safe. Mm. But properly administered, it's a very, very powerful therapeutic modality. By the way, when we say the word medicine, it's synonymous with psychedelics. That's kind of like insider lingo. And that's a great transition into my next question, which is when you're screening a potential client, what are some of the deal breaker issues that would have you say, no, I'm, I don't recommend that you work with therapeutic psychedelics and I'm not willing to work with you? Well, gosh, it's contingent on a couple of things. And one is their mental state. So if they are psychologically impaired in some way, that's not the type of person who should step into this kind of work. Yeah. If I remember correctly, your medical history intake form is pretty extensive. Mine's fairly long. <laughs> what are you wanting to make sure you find out in order to feel safe working with them? If, if I was kind of kidding myself, I'd probably say I'm looking to find out everything I can. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really looking to see who they are in the world and how much support they have around them. 
Uh -huh. what, are, what are their addictions? How bad are their addictions? But the one thing that we screen for that's, as you led with a deal breaker, is certain prescription medications. And some of those are strictly contraindicated. Mm -hmm. Some are dangerous to mix with psychedelics and others simply diminish the effects such that you just don't have any experience with the medicine. Yeah. Mental health and prescription meds are two top of the page items. Yeah. Thank you. And what I might add that, you know, for, for the better part of nine years, I was taking groups of executives to Peru on an ayahuasca retreat. And the thing I was screening for, in addition to everything you said, was any history of what, you know, the conventional medical system would call a mental illness, bipolar, manic depression, borderline personality disorder, extreme narcissism are the ones that pop to mind, but we mm -hmm. have a very thorough list. And the reason being is that for some people, enough people who have these pre-existing conditions, schizophrenia, and if with the case of schizophrenia, we want to know if it's actually in their immediate family, even if they have no symptoms of it. Some types of psychedelic experiences are capable of triggering a new episode or bringing to the surface a, a mental condition that hasn't yet blossomed in, in mm -hmm. their life. Yeah, absolutely. Very astute of you to track for all those things. And, and more, as you said, the list is fairly long. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to trigger any of that in, in the work that we're doing since we're actually moving towards healing and not disruption. If I were just to give some warnings to you, dear listener, as you're leaning into considering engaging in therapeutic psychedelic experiences in any form, is one... Be totally honest during the mental screening. You don't want to lie or minimize because you're not only putting yourself at risk, you're also putting, if it's a group context, other people at risk. So be honest on your intake, but also avoid group psychedelic scenarios that didn't screen you well enough because you know they didn't screen anyone else well enough. Anything come up for you hearing about that, Nikki? It's all about proper intake. It's all about the set and setting too. Mm -hmm. I mean, every, everything has, this is when it goes off smoothly, which it often does, it seems effortless, but orchestrating it, the work behind the scenes done properly has dozens and dozens of things that we've paid attention to and set up rather meticulously in order to optimize your experience in this, in this day long retreat. Great. Uh, my last warning, and then we'll get into what is the process that you actually work people through. My last warning is choosing to smoke 5-MeO-DMT, also known as TOAD, with a guide who isn't offering a significant amount of post-experience support is a, probably the highest risk. Yeah, it's the most risky thing you could choose to do. And unfortunately, it's also probably the most common because uh, these days, anybody with a vape pen and access to 5-MeO can provide these experiences for their friends. My God, so true. I think the latest statistics are 20% of, of users can suffer a significant adverse reaction, which is one out of five people. Those odds are too high yeah. to, to, to mess with. Especially when 
again, in my opinion, even the best case scenario uh, with 5-MeO or Toad proves to usually be an unintegratable experience. So as far as measuring uh, potential positive long-term benefits of engaging with psychedelics in a therapeutic environment, I think it's probably the least effective with some caveats, of course. I agree. So that's a good uh, transition, uh, Nikki. What what psychedelics do you typically start people with when you mm-hmm. begin working with them and, and why? Yeah, thanks, Michael. Generally, everyone coming into this work begins with an MDMA session. And we begin with MDMA simply because it's lovingly known as a heart opener. And we we want that heart opening. We want the the way it promotes empathy, the way it gets people to feel, the way it does it without triggering trauma. It does it quite magically that way, where it actually brings the fear center, our hypothalamus, it brings it offline. It brings our frontal lobe, our neocortex online so that we can actually see things with some neutrality without the emotional trigger that the memories can activate. And it's that ability to see things with some neutrality. A lot of healing happens there. I agree that that is the least risky with the greatest potential for positive long-term effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and studies year after year are supporting that. And I want to mention that... (laughs) I've never had anyone come to me, I want to do therapeutic psychedelics um, with a guide uh, who's thinking they're going to end up doing MDMA. Um, In fact, more often than not, they're actually disappointed. They're like, no, (laughs) I want to do mushrooms. I want to do high-dose mushrooms. I want to have that unified, all-one God experience that I hear mushrooms can provide. And it takes some, some learning and understanding before they get that for what they actually want, uh, that MDMA is is by far the best first choice. Mm-hmm. Hello, dear listener. During the editing of this episode, I realized that I left out a very important point that is informing all of my recommendations. All of my clients are high-functioning business leaders carrying a lot of responsibility on their shoulders. They cannot afford to have a profound spiritual awakening that will cause them to question their life path or possibly trigger existential anxiety. Though rare, this is a risk that comes with using stronger psychedelics at higher doses. This is the reason that I strongly recommend that you work with the gentlest substance at the lightest viable dose when your goal is to improve your professional performance. Save the stronger experiences for a time when you have a few weeks off and the freedom to make big life changes should you want to. Okay, back to the interview. Fully agreed. I mean, just the power to shift the user's attention towards positive experiences while while minimizing also the impact of negative feelings. Uh, You know, we we sort for the negative. We kind of live in a negative way for the most part. We, We worry, right? We forecast the negative outcome as we prognosticate instead of the positive outcome. So what a great way to actually open up to the possibility of new beginnings and new ways than to have our attention move towards positive experiences. Yeah, I'm wanting to share a story from a client 
that I'm working with now who had a recent oh, experience. Do. Yeah. So he, he's a CEO of a startup and the challenge he was having was too much of his identity of self was wrapped up in the startup. You know, most founders refer to their startup as their baby, which is an important relationship to the startup in the beginning. But at a certain point, you have to let it go. And if you're still relating to the business as your baby or even yours, once you take investor money, uh, it creates significant psychological suffering and limits what you're capable of doing as a leader because it gets into the not being able to delegate and trust other people to do their job. Um, yeah, so key. Yeah, and in this this CEO's case, he decided to do uh, a guided session, and the guide convinced him that MDMA was the right place to start. And to oversimplify what happened during that session, he experienced revisiting his life and noticing all the key experiences that led him to stop trusting himself. And in the weeks after the session, we worked together to uncouple the psychological structure of relating to his company as his baby. And as a result, he's had an easier time hiring. He's had an easier time actually imagining a point in the, you know, not too distant future, maybe just after the B round, where he hired a CEO that was more experienced than him to take over the role and lead the company through to the IPO goal that he has. And that's just created so many new choices for him as CEO, as well as reduced and a significant amount of stress in his life. What a classic example of the kind of aha moment that can actually provide just great transformation. I was getting the image of him just basically getting to lay down this anchor and chain that he was dragging along yes. while, while birthing this corporation. Yes, totally. And to be able to lay that down, what freedom he must have felt. Yes, Definitely true liberation was the best way to describe what he experienced and continues to experience. This is what it's about, isn't it, Michael? It's about liberation. This is about freeing ourselves from our past. It's so much about freeing the past and freeing yourself from the character of yourself that you inherently built over the decade leading up to this moment mm -hmm. um, and sometimes your entire life, freeing yourself from that caricature of you that's now confining and not appropriate for what you're, you're experiencing in your life and who you want to be in your life and being able to re essentially retire it like an old car that no longer does the job. You let it go and then you're free to get a new car that is perfectly suited for your current life. Oh, so good. So well said. Mm. Yeah. A lot of these character aspects, they're personalities of a three-year-old, of a four-year-old, of a five-year-old. And so now here we are decades later, definitely deserving of a new car, mm -hmm. <laughs> of upgrading that software. Hi there. Please excuse this interruption. But I want to take this opportunity to invite you to join the next Entrepreneur's Awakening Mastermind program. As I said before, I'm only accepting eight business leaders and it's filling up fast. So if you're curious, visit 
awakeforward.com right now to learn more and apply to join. Okay, back to the episode. Okay, so let's get down to what it's like to actually work with you. Well, in a nutshell, we begin honing what it is that they're seeking. Mm -hmm. You can call it their desires. One might call it their prayer. What is it that they want? And really clarifying that and moving closer and closer to it and refining it and doing it with specificity, those desires, the needs, the limitations that need to be addressed, What's in the way of them reaching their desired state, as we say? That's truly, I think, the focus of preparation, looking at what challenges are in their way. Why can't they just have what they want? Well, we spoke about it earlier. It's usually found in their beliefs, in their self-talk, in their unconscious languaging that they use. So slowly upgrading that and preparing them. And how many prep sessions leading up to the day-long experience? This is at least two weeks prior to the day-long retreat. So two sessions mm-hmm. minimum. So two sessions pr- minimum leading up to the day-long mm-hmm. retreat. Mm-hmm. And so they arrive with total clarity on what's going to happen, what they want to focus on, um, having built trust and relationship with you so you're not a stranger. Mm-hmm. Um and then what's the day long like? Well, this is week three of, of their work so far, and uh, it begins in the morning. And we begin by checking in to see how they are in that moment, what's alive for them. And we discuss the flow of the day. We discuss consent. We make sure that they're clear on agreements for the day. We want to lay out even what might be overtly obvious, just to really make sure that the agreement is in place. Mm-hmm. And then the general layout for the flow of the day, they begin their session laying down in a bed. And I'm there across from them this whole time. They will have an experience. Sometimes it's in silence and sometimes it's in deep conversation with me. And I'm there as a scribe as well. I'm capturing what it is that they have to say because th- these notes will be part of their integration later. It's, it's hard to remember what happens during a journey, especially when it's five hours long. So I'm acting in a multi-spectrum role there. And generally after about five or six hours, we start returning to quote normal, moving a little bit more towards what we could call sobriety. And that allows us to close the session and take a meal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. So once they're grounded and sober and ready, uh, then they're free to leave and go home. They are. And at that point, either someone they know and love picks them up or it's a, a Lyft or Uber driver. But mm. no, no one ever drives here mm. for their own safety. Great. And then begins the integration process. So how, how do you conduct that? Integration, we begin about three or four days after the retreat to kind of strike while the iron's hot. And this is where we can actually begin to take responsibility for our lives. This is, oh gosh, a powerful, fertile story for us. I mean, it began where we've entered into a relationship with our visions you know, we, we stayed curious to them, and now we're weaving them into our life as teachings. Mm-hmm. And that's that's why I said earlier that it's like 
quite easily, even though these three pillars of preparation, the day long and integration are equal, but really the work here is in into integration. And you're typically in touch with them for a couple of weeks after? It is for two more weeks after that, mm -hmm. that week. And there's a lot of people that continue with these 90 minute calls weeks after to continue the integration and also to build a bridge of support. Mm -hmm. But by now we've become a trusted advisor and we've become an accountability partner. And so here we're checking, are you practicing that meditation that you intended to, are you practicing the guitar scale that you chose to do? Uh-huh. Are you going out into walks into nature as you saw clearly that that was imperative that you do? Yeah. And this is also where my collaboration with the process picks up again in our coaching sessions. They also debrief with me and we start looking at how their insights can be applied to the KPIs that we've set for their performance in their professional role. And I really appreciate the split in responsibility as I see it, Nikki, you're working with the deeper, subtler content that came up with them. And I'm handling the more, you know, material world, practical application of that in the business context. And this is also why my personal preference is that the executive coach and the guide are two different people. I personally feel that it's better to have a separation between the two. And another framework that I think is helpful to, to share when you're doing the prep sessions with them, I'm working with them to, to document in a spreadsheet a set of characteristics that they're tracking to see change. And we call that their baseline. So their baseline way of doing their professional role. There's a honeymoon phase for about 10 days after the experience where there's a lot of uh, empowerment and feeling different. And then in day 10 through 20, it's kind of 50-50. You're not going back to how you were, but you certainly don't have the the qualities that you were really enjoying in the in the week after. And some people can get pretty disappointed during this phase. I always prepare them to be ready for it. At the end of 30 days, I, we do a new baseline and in most of the metrics we're measuring improved from before and some areas less so some areas significantly so and we call that their new baseline and then as their coach i want them to leverage this new baseline get to know this new baseline work with this new baseline for at least another three months before they consider doing another guided session and if one were to continue with this cycle, you can describe it as establishing new baselines, working with them, getting clear on what you want to see change, and then doing the process again, moving the baselines in the direction you want them to go, working with that for a while, getting clear on what you want to change, do another day long, and then work with the new baseline. And, you know, every time there's significant improvement and some people one and done and others they tend to continue going with every three to five months doing another day-long session um, as long as it's generating the the results it's it's definitely worth the investment of mm -hmm. yeah I, I could really see that tracking their progress and from their baseline forward and reestablishing a new baseline it's not something anyone could see on their own and it's so helpful it's only 
their friends who make saying, I remember you were so this way or that way last year. And they say, Oh yeah, right. Huh? Because they've already stepped into the new version of themselves. They've left that one behind. It's hard to track their own progress. So let's, let's answer a, a very common question that's perfect for this point in our conversation. How does one find a guide? I mean, mm. let's just say they're not working through me. How does somebody find you? Hmm. Well, unfortunately, at the moment, we can't check guides, reviews on Yelp. You know, it truly is through word of mouth. It, it's only by referral. It's either, in our case, we have doctors and therapists referring their clients to us, or it's um, a loved one or a family member who refers them word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Other. Yeah, uh, it's true. And I wish it were different, but there are three or four conferences in the country that are open to lay people as well as, as professionals in the field where you can network to meet people that if you build enough trust with, they would be willing to refer you to somebody. And then going to a foreign retreat center or contacting a foreign retreat center because there are countries that where this is legal. So you can just call them up and schedule a session and fly to their center and, and do the thing. Is there anything, any other access point that you can think of? It's pretty limited, Michael. I know. Well, at least it's simple. Word of mouth, networking at a conference, or go to a foreign retreat center. Oh, there are, especially in the last two years, a number of churches that have been formed in the United States who are legally claiming that their sacred sacrament is, it wouldn't be MDMA because it's not a plant-based medicine, but they, they have plant-based medicines. So you could also perhaps search on Google for churches in the United States that provide access to psychedelic experiences through the church. And for example, I know, I don't know the exact, the name of it, um, but there is one in Oakland, California, that's very above board, very public. And that would be a a place where you could, you could find a referral to a one-on-one guide. Which leads to the next most important question, maybe the most important question, and that is, how should one vet a psychedelic guide? There's no Yelp for guides. Mm. If I was referred to a guide, there's probably a protocol for reaching out to her, but the first thing would be, how do I feel talking to them? How do they come across? Does my body kind of open and lean in or does it close and kind of pull away? Mm-hmm. You know, who referred them would mean a lot. If you said that this is a super dear individual that you've had incredible success with, I'd probably get more story from you. And that would fill me up a little bit with information about the guide. I would interview them and I, and, you know, and see how that feels. And if I could, I would meet them personally, you know, look in their eyes and shake their hands and say, I'm looking to bring these parts of me out into the open and transform them. And can you talk to me about it? Mm -hmm. And then if possible, look at the space they work in. Cause if we go back to the, how imperative set and setting is, then again, if they could show me their workspace, 
you know, mm-hmm. I, I would get a, even more information that way. So it's it's a multi-step uh, approach to collecting the data that would mm-hmm. probably inform me whether it was a yes or no. Well, that's great because uh, those are very critical and not what I would have thought of first. <laughs> <laughs> I'm approaching this more from, you know, a hiring perspective. I would want to know how many years have you been personally working with psychedelic medicines? What's your personal journey with them been like? I'd want somebody who had a long personal experience before they decided to provide these experiences for other people. And then I would ask, how many years have you been providing these one-on-one experiences for other people? And then I would ask, how many have you actually done? Is it 10? Mm -hmm. Is it 20? Is it over 100? It's not uncommon to find people with more than 100 day longs under their, their belt. And then I would start asking about who trained them. This is not something you learn from a book. It's not even something I think you can really teach yourself. Certainly not in less than, you know, I don't know, make something up five years of intentionally trying to train yourself. It's more of an apprenticeship type learning. So I would ask, who did they apprentice with? In these days, you could, there are actual trainings available. So I might call it a training. Did you do a, a formal training and who did you do that with? Or at least describe the, the credentials of the person that you did it with, since people tend to not say, share names. And really vet their experience. And then I'd also want to know how, how many sessions a month are you providing? Because if it's somebody that's, you know, doing one a month or one every couple months, I would consider that a hobbyist, not, not a full-time professional. And last but not least, I would, my final judgment as to whether I wanted to work with them would come after I see their intake paperwork. Mm. If their medical screening isn't, doesn't feel like almost overwhelming to me, (laughs) then I would think, okay, they either haven't learned the contemporary medical best practices that MAPS and other nonprofits are putting out there for guides to use or they're just lax would be the term I would use to judge that. And you can always pull out after seeing that. You don't have to, you get that before you, you know, put down a deposit because mm-hmm. they haven't decided they're going to work with you either until you've filled that out. So that would be the final step of making the decision. That's a great metric. That intake form and, it, and its size is just another good informant as Mm -hmm. to who we're dealing with. So in previous conversations, you've shared with me about your most recent training, which was a three-year training that uh, you're drawing upon to do the form of guided work that you do today. Can you just give us a high-level overview of what that training entailed, like year one, year two, year three, Mm -hmm. so that we can get a sense of what someone who goes through that type of training might come out the other side with and what Mm -hmm. and how that qualifies them to be a guide. Mm -hmm. Of course. 
no matter who was coming into uh, enrolling into this school, whether they were already a credentialed um, therapist, doctor, PhD, everyone had to go through the first year of being guided through many journeys, receiving the different medicines that we would work with in the future and receiving them as as clients uh -huh. so that we can so that we can uh, learn and observe and witness the container and how the teachers administered the medicine the roles that they held the space that they kept so you spent the first year learning what it was like to be a client or patient in the context of the work yes and only when that was completed were we allowed to enroll into school and school was about two years long, and a lot of it was monthly classroom weekend-long gatherings where basically got the download of the, the traditions, how it went back to those wonderful elders of ours who many have since long passed who were working with LSD and psilocybin working with clients in this revolutionary new way to alleviate them from from their suffering and this is also where you were given different protocols and best practices around protocols we covered safe practices and consent and chemistry and yeah it was it was full spectrum yeah and then what was the third year like? Is that when they let you just start work with, with people as a guide? The third year, the classroom instruction continued, but we began trading with each other within our cohort where we would sit for multiple people as new guides, and then they would sit for us uh, as new guides. So we, we would trade off uh, working with the different medicines and giving and receiving. All right. Very thorough. The most <laughs> thorough program I've ever heard of. Great. So thank you. I, I feel complete. I, I appreciate how much you've shared and what you've shared. And I think we've achieved our goal of providing the, the minimum amount of information that we would want somebody to know who was considering working with a psychedelic guide. Is there anything that we might not have covered that you think is important for our listeners to know? Hmm. Gosh, I would simply say that after uh, many decades on earth in this field, I'd say I have not seen any other modality work with such finesse and power and grace as psychedelic medicines at essentially relieving human suffering in a professionally held container. I mean, it blows the doors off talk therapy. And gosh, with the proper prep, creating the right set and setting, professionally held, this is an amazing method for transformation. And I couldn't agree more. And after, for myself, after 12 years of full-time executive coaching, with entrepreneurial CEOs, the combination of the best practice executive coaching model with the strategic guided psychedelic session, there's just nothing more powerful. My clients and I are able to achieve in six months what would normally take a year with just executive coaching alone. 
Well, there you have it, my friends. I hope you found the answers to your questions. I hope you now are clear on whether this is a path that you want to pursue, what the next steps might be, and how to find and vet a psychedelic guide. Thank you so much for inviting me on, Michael. My pleasure. Thank you for speaking publicly for the first time. The gag's off. The gag's off. All right. Thank you, my friend. Hey there. Thanks for listening. If you're ready to learn more about what psychedelic-assisted executive coaching can do for you, simply visit awakeforward.com. If you liked what you learned, please subscribe now so that you don't miss the next episode. I'd like to recognize the talent that made this episode possible. First and foremost, thank you to Nikki for sharing his time and advice so freely. Thank you to my production team at Come Alive Creative for their patience and expert advice. I want to thank Future Primitive for allowing me to use his song Kinetic, which you can find on all music streaming platforms. Visit awakeforward.com podcast to find links to these resources and more in the show notes for this episode. Okay, see you next episode. Hi there. I hope you found this episode valuable. I want to take this last opportunity to invite you to consider joining the upcoming Mastermind program. If you're curious... Simply go to awakeforward.com right now to learn more and apply to join. Okay, I'll see you next episode.